Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Sebastian Castellier, an El Monitor contributor who covers the political economy of the Arab Gulf region. Sebastian and I will discuss how the Gulf states balance their ties with both the U.S. and China, why the GCC may prefer a Trump victory in the U.S. presidential election, the impact of the Gulf economic downturn on migrant workers, the potential and limits of Israel's normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain, what Sebastian calls the lost opportunity of the GCC rail project and how repairing the rift in the Gulf would benefit the region economically, the prospects for Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030, change in reform in Oman and Kuwait, and discussions in the Gulf about a universal basic income. If that sounds like a lot, it is, and we cover it all in just about 30 minutes. My conversation with Sebastian Castellier begins after this short break and a few brief opening remarks by me about the good news about Arab youth. Ahead of the uh, U.S. election on November 3rd, um, many in the Gulf wonder what to expect from the U.S.-GCC relation going forward. Um, there is a sentiment uh, for some that the U.S. is abandoning the region at the time when China's influence in the region is growing. But the region is not really keen to choose between the U.S. or China. They, they kind of want to be in between. And um, many view this as an economic opportunity for the region to benefit both from the U.S. and China expertise in many fields, including the um, uh, high tech and research and development as well. The region really see benefits uh, being right in between the U.S. and, and China and, and take advantage of, of the two superpowers that they are. That was Sebastian Castellier, who will be joining us shortly. But first, let me tell you what's on my mind, and indeed some good news about the prospects for the region. The 2020 Arab Youth Survey came out last week, and it's really a drop-everything-must-read about the trends shaping the Middle East. Now, despite the prevalence of war, protests, pandemic, and economic crisis, Arab youth, here defined as ages 18 to 24, have embraced realism, not ideology, in their view of the region. As my friend and colleague Afshi Malavi writes in the report, if there is an ism in play here, it's pragmatism. There is no traction among youth for grandiose schemes of Arab nationalism, Islamism, non-alignment, or socialism, as there may have been decades ago. The oldest of the Arab youth cohort would have been born in 1996. This means that they missed many of the events that shaped those previous ideologies. They missed the Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, the Egyptian and Jordanian peace agreements with Israel, the first Palestinian intifada, and the Lebanese and Algerian civil wars, and probably have only the vaguest memories, if any at all, of Saddam Hussein's tyranny in Iraq and his overthrow in 2003, or of the second Palestinian Intifada, and again, to name just a few of the seminal events that shaped the region. 
This youth cohort's formative memories are instead of the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011, the wars in Syria, Yemen, and Libya, the coronavirus pandemic, and governing elites who seem to be doing more than fine themselves and stay in power for really long periods of time, but are unable to provide jobs, pick up the trash, or keep the electricity running for the citizens they are supposed to serve. The social safety net in Arab states has too many holes compounded these days by low oil prices and the impact of COVID-19 making a bad and volatile situation that much worse. An International Monetary Fund report last month found that while Middle Eastern states may be spending more on education, health, and social services, that is the social safety net, the inefficiency of these state institutions has contributed to a lag in progress relative to other regions. These frustrations with governance have sparked an expansive and brave activism among the youth, which is not limited to social media, although it's very prevalent there too. More tellingly, this generation, which grew up on the Arab Spring, takes its message to the streets and it's not letting up despite the COVID-19 pandemic. The protests in particular in Iraq, Sudan, Lebanon, and Algeria have widespread support, according to the survey, between 82 to 89% of the Arab youth in those countries, with majorities of youth in Libya, Yemen, and Tunisia not ruling out protests in their countries to drive change. Now, religion is still a cornerstone of identity for Arab youth, especially in North Africa, but there's an overall trend in the region away from religiosity and religious institutions, as Ali Mamouri has written about in El Monitor in his coverage of Iraq. 40% of Arab youth cite religion as central to their identity, with 19% listing tribe, 17% nationality, and 7% their Arab heritage. The message of protest carried by Arab youth really convey optimism. They want change, but the demands are rooted, as I mentioned, in realism, not ideology. This is a trend toward good governance, jobs, and a future involving a larger role for the private sector. The survey indicates an increased interest in entrepreneurism and the digital economy. The UAE is, again, the most popular country among Arab youth, with 46% saying that's where they want to live, with the United States coming in second at 33%. The UAE gets the nod for job opportunities, safety, and salaries. The survey took place, it should be said, before the UAE normalized ties with Israel, but the guess here is that that decision is unlikely to dent the overall positive perception of the Emirates among Arab youth. That said, the Palestinian issue still holds sway in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, and obviously the West Bank and Gaza, as a top foreign policy priority, less so in the Gulf where concerns about Iran dominate, and that's according to polling last year by David Pollack of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Now, although the United States at 56% still trails China, 73%, Russia, 71%, as a perceived ally of the region by Arab youth, the U.S. is nonetheless considered as the most influential outside power in the region. 46% said the U.S. 
holds the greatest influence, again, among these outside powers over Turkey, Russia, and Iran coming in second, third, and fourth. Now, interestingly, although China doesn't even register uh, an influence, according to the survey, it ranks second to the UAE in global leadership during the COVID-19 crisis. You can read my full column on the air abuse survey in the latest Dell Monitor we can review. And now to our conversation with Sebastian Castellier, who before becoming a columnist and writer on Arab Gulf affairs, previously worked as a photojournalist in Iraq, documenting the various impacts of the military campaign against the Islamic State. In his writings, Sebastian is a practitioner of the El Monitor ethos that the best way to understand the region is by incorporating voices and perspectives from the region mixed with rigorous and unbiased analysis. Sebastian's El Monitor columns on the political economy of the Gulf are must-reads for those seeking to understand the region. Our conversation with Sebastian Castellier begins now. Sebastian, welcome to On the Middle East. Hi, Andrews. Thanks for having me today. Let's get right into it. You write this week in El Monitor that the Gulf states are navigating a kind of middle course between the U.S. and China. Now, obviously, all of the Gulf states value the U.S. security and commercial relationships they have. How do they view China and how are they navigating this tension between the U.S. and China, which seems to be getting worse. Mm, absolutely. This is a very important topic at the, at the moment in the region. Well, ahead of the uh, U.S. election on November 3rd, um, many in the Gulf wonder what to expect from the U.S.-GCC relation going forward. Um, there is a sentiment uh, for some that the U.S. is abandoning the region at the time when China's influence in the region is growing. But the region is not really keen to choose between the U.S. or China. They, they kind of want to be in between. And um, many view this as an economic opportunity for the region to benefit both from the U.S. and China expertise in many fields, including the um, uh, high-tech and research and development as well. You know, earlier this week, um, for a monitor, of course, I, I, I talked to some people across the region. I, I spoke with a young Emirati who studied in Singapore, and he told me our relationship with China is also an opportunity for the UAE to gain exposure to a different um, culture, to a different language, political system, mindset, and discover new trade terms, legislations, and way of handling governance. So the, the region really see benefits uh, being right in between the U.S. and, and China and, and take advantage of, of the two um, superpowers that they are. Do you have a sense of how the Gulf states view the U.S. presidential election? Now, you mentioned in your piece for El Monitor that Joe Biden's statement last year to make Saudi Arabia, quote, pariah and perhaps cut off aid because of the Yemen war. And there have been a number of congressional initiatives about that is still hanging in the air. Now, as the Gulf states navigate between the U.S. and China, how are they looking at the U.S. presidential election? M many in the region are kind of worried of um, what is going on in, in the U.S. Um, many would tend to prefer uh, 
a Trump administration because it would seize a Trump administration as closer to GCC interest. Um, and the kind of worry of what could happen with the Biden administration, as you, as you have just mentioned, um, Joe Biden said it clearly and, and many times that he would have a much more complicated relation with Saudi Arabia, um, that he has the, the intention to re-enter the Iran deal. Um, so for many across the region, this is um, wrong signs. And, and, and when you use the word, make Saudi Arabia a paria, it, it is a very strong statement. And um, people are waiting. Um, people are wondering who will win the election. And, 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 and then, of course, um, based on that, um, a lot will happen, definitely, uh, in, in terms of negotiation and so on. So, and, and, of course, uh, many also wonder if Joe Biden um, uses World Paria as a campaign word, a campaign argument, or if it's really his willingness to do that in, in the future. So it's more like wait and see, I would say, in the region here. You know, and there's also the concern, and not just in some of the Gulf states, but also uh, in Israel, about uh, that the Biden administration would re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, which was unpopular in the region and the, a, a cause of some concern and frustration that the Gulf states were not consulted the last time around. Of course, this is, a, this is definitely a, a, a great source of concern. I mean, the, the Iran deal is, is something that um, uh, Gulf leaders dislike. That's a, the least we can say. And, and, and so we're quite happy of, of um, seeing Donald Trump getting out of that and, and seeing Joe Biden um, expressing repeatedly the willingness to re-enter the Iran deal um, is certainly something that, that, that doesn't play well in the region. Yeah, so it, it's, more like, it's more like wait and see. And if there is a Biden administration, um, let's see how, how committed will it be to, to the statement of re-entering the, uh, the Iran deal, which is not something that can be done overnight. It, it will certainly be a lot more complex than just a statement, and it will involve negotiation with Iran. So it, it's gonna it's gonna take time anyway, even even though it is a, a Biden administration. Let's go back to some of the uh, an overview of some of the big economic trends that are shaping the Gulf now, which which you've written about. You know, the most obvious ones that have impacted the region uh, and the world, for that matter, have been low oil prices and the COVID nineteen pandemic. What, what other trends have been problematic for the Gulf states and have been maybe accentuated or amplified during these twin crises of the pandemic and, and low oil prices? And what do you see as some of the encouraging trends in the region? So as the Gulf comes out of uh, the pandemic, ho hopefully sooner rather than later, along with the, with the rest of the, the global economy, uh, what do you see as the main engines of, of growth? Absolutely. 2020 has been a very difficult uh, year for the, for the Gulf region. Um, well, of course, there is the, uh, the economic crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but there is also the low oil price, and, and, and this is um, something extremely difficult for the region to navigate. I would say the COVID-19 economic crisis hit hard on migrant workers and non-oil economy. Um, the private sector faces incredible challenges. Um, wave of bankruptcy are expected, um, which is a problem because SMEs are really the main engine for job creation in, in the Gulf region. Um, in 2017, 
SMEs in the Gulf employed 17 million people, which is quite a lot. Um, problem, most of them are actually migrant workers from Asia and Africa. And when they lose their jobs, they have to leave the region, which leads to a risk of downward spiral. So in the, if, if we just take the UAE, for instance, in the UAE only, more than half a million migrant workers have been repatriated since March 2020. So it is quite a huge number. And the second aspect is, of course, the low oil prices. Um, according to studies, oil prices account for over three quarters of the annual revenues of gov governments. And really, like, oil and gas revenues fuel uh, GCC economies. But beyond the short-term loss of revenues um, in 2020 and 2021, um, low oil prices question the long-term sustainability of um, the GCC business model, let's call it this way. Um, although GCC countries are expected to be the last exporter standing, um, on the long term, there is a major global energy transition which is expected, and, and leaders across the region are well aware of that, yet it is something challenging and difficult to navigate um, because there are social constraints that limit the possibility to reform. Um, however, I would say that thanks, um, in a way, thanks to the COVID-19 crisis, um, the region start to realize what is coming. I mean, people are getting more aware that um, the economic dynamics are changing and that the future might not be like the past. They start to realize also that general social welfare might not last forever. So in, in, in many ways, 2020 is an eye opener for many. Yet, as we say, there are encouraging trends as well. And um, Although demand in the job, um, I mean, although demand for jobs in the public sector remain quite high um, in the population, still many youth understand what's going on and, and they are interested into entrepreneurship. They are interested into uh, the private sector, and we see a real interest for entrepreneurship for um, business creation in the region, uh, especially among the youth and. In, in this particular field, the success, the success of Karim, um, which was sold for, to Uber for $3.1 billion, plays a very important um, role because it shows to the youth that they can succeed, that um, a business launched in the region can become big and can be sold for a very high price. So it is inspiring a young generation and, and this is very important. So, Entrepreneurship is, is really a, a driver going forward, I would say. Sebastian, about migrant workers, you've written about this. Let's, let's go into a little more detail. You've talked about their departure during the COVID-19. You've, you've written about the issues of residency and citizenship. Some have still not been paid. Is, is this a short-term problem, a long-term problem? Will we return to business as usual with regard to migrant workers in the Gulf once the pandemic recedes? Exactly. We, we really cannot speak about the Gulf region and GCC economies without mentioning the role played by migrant workers. Um, who was backbone of Gulf, uh, Gulf economies? I mean, for, for decades, Gulf countries have relied extensively on, on foreign workers, predominantly from Asia and Africa, to work in uh, various professions that local citizens uh, reject or are not interested to, to take. 
So without millions of migrant workers, the region would stop functioning, and, and, and yet they face very harsh conditions of living. Not all of them, of course, but many of them. And, and they suffer from uh, various abuses. I mean, Amnesty International uh, once said that Gulf states are notorious for the systematic abuse and exploitation of migrant workers. Um, so during the pandemic, Gulf states, um, but also their countries of origin, have been extremely reluctant to protect them, to support them, and, and to assist them during this difficult time. So migrant workers are the ones who are paying the highest price uh, of the crisis that is taking place in the region at the moment. Um, repatriation flights are still an issue for many, and, and there has been a report published this week highlighting the fate of migrant workers uh, who lost their job during the pandemic and have no other choice but to sleep in parks. Um, this takes place in, in Dubai. So the COVID-19 crisis highlights that Gulf states look at migrant workers as a disposable workforce and, and, and thousands of them were also returned to their home country without being paid uh, wages owed to them. Um, so far from the Gulf region, far from the Court of Justice in, in the Gulf region, um, they are unable to defend their rights. And this has a profound impact on communities in Nepal, in India, in Bangladesh, but also in Kenya and elsewhere in Africa. Um, communities who, who have believed in, in migration and who are being deceived um, during the crisis at the moment. Um, so human rights activists really wonder when Gulf government will finally set up uh, set, and, and take responsibility for, for, for what's going on. Um, there has been reforms in, in recent years. Um, we have to acknowledge that. Uh, Qatar recently announced its ambition to reform uh, certain areas of the capitalist system. And human rights organizations are like wait and see. So hopefully there will be more progress going forward. Uh, but this is certainly uh, a very uh, important problem taking place at the at the moment in the region, and and that will need to be addressed um, in the future. Another major event of 2020 has been the normalization agreements between Israel and the UAE mm -hmm. and Bahrain. So, what do you see of the potential impact of these agreements on the economic trends in both countries and the in the region more broadly? What are the possibilities as you see them, the sectors and areas that are prime for cooperation and takeoff? And what are the limits of these agreements in terms of economic potential? Well, maybe starting with the, with the limits, uh, we can mention that not only the GCC faces an economic crisis at the moment, but we can also, we can also mention that Israel at the moment is, is going through a difficult time, uh, economic split, economic economically speaking, but also um, from a health crisis perspective. It, it might, it might um, wait on, on the partnership between the, between the region and, um, and Israel going forward. But I would say normalization with Israel is something which is obviously extremely sensitive across the region because it is not, it is not because political or, or governments normalize relations that this is accepted at the society level. I mean, there is still a very strong opposition um, on this normalization at the population level. Uh, we, we have seen that on social networks. We have seen a campaign to, 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 to denounce this normalization going on. And, and Bahraini were quite vocal about that. We, we didn't hear much in the, in the Emirates. 
in Bahrain, we could hear a lot. Yet, there are many people who believe it is a great opportunity, economically speaking, um, especially in the entrepreneurship field. Um, you have so many entrepreneurs who see a great opportunity to, to, to expand their business, to, to develop new uh, business ties and so on. Um, last week, I was talking to the um, former U.S. ambassador to Oman, Mark Sievers, and he believes golf entrepreneurs can use his own deep connection to the American high-tech as a bridge to the Silicon Valley to attract interest in the region. And this is actually something very smart, because if we look at the dynamics at, at the moment, um, golf entrepreneurs are not necessarily, all of them, very well connected with the Silicon Valley although it could be interesting and, and offer lots of potential for the region. So Israel could play this role as a bridge between, um, let's, call it, uh, let's call it this way, a, a nascent um, startup ecosystem in the Gulf region and what is already existing in, in the US. So that could be an interesting role um, Israel could, could play in, in, in the region. We're in the third year of the rift within the GCC between Qatar on the one hand and Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt on the other. Mm. We've uh, talked in the past on, on, in this show and uh, many articles on El Monitor about the security aspects of this, but what have been the economic, what has been the economic impact of the GCC rift? And if it's to be resolved, and there have been, you know, some signals that that may be in the works, um, what would be the economic impact, if any? Well, there are actually many economic impacts, but the main impact, I would say, or the most important one, um, would be a future impact. Um, as we have mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, um, this blockade happened at a time when the region needs economic collaboration, economic integration, maybe more than ever. Um, and, and GCC, GCC states face challenges that are different from a country to another, but yet uh, the, there is a commonality in, in that. Um, all of them are oil and gas producers and, and they need to diversify their economy. And having a strong GCC entity, a strong economic cooperation between the states and the region could really, really benefit to, to the region. So yeah, and, and the blockade just happened at this time and just literally split the region into two, um, which is not good in terms of economic development and, 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 and so on. Um, it, might, it might be seen by some players as an interesting idea, but if we, if we take a step back and, and look at the broader perspective on the long term, uh, it is not beneficial to the region. Um, in July, I write a report um, for a monitor on the GCC railway, which is a repeatedly delayed project. Um, it's 1,350 kilometer long rail network stretching across the GCC region. Um, but the project has been delayed for several reasons in the past, but the last, the last reason is the Qatar crisis and, and the blockade literally interrupted the project and, and it's, it's impossible to move on with, with this project at the moment. Um, recent press reports have indicated that the GCC railway could be completed by 2023, but Qatar is no longer mentioned as part of it. And in 2018, the former GCC, uh, the, yeah, the former Secretary General of the GCC, said the GCC rail network could have a far-reaching impact in terms of socio-economic development. 
So it is it is really an important project for the region that has been stopped because because of the blockade. It is a lost opportunity, I would say. Um, we could also mention technological advancements, uh, research and development, and investment um, that cannot take place at a regional scale because because of the blockade. Um, yes, yeah, so, so political tensions are really not benefiting to the region on, on the long term. And um, following the death of, uh, of Sheikh Sabah of Kuwait, um, Donald Trump called on the region to come together to honor his legacy and, and work together for um, the cooperative future that he envisioned. So, yes, yeah, the, the blockade is not um, in favor of the region, I would say, from an economic perspective uh, on the long term. Let me ask you about Saudi Arabia. You've written on the role recently of uh, women entrepreneurs there. You've written on the future of mega projects that have been affected by the low oil prices in the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic. How do you see the Saudi economy in particular? And hasn't the low oil price and COVID-19 pandemic made the Vision 2030 project even more imperative? The COVID-19 crisis come um, COVID-19 crisis and the low oil prices come with an issue, which is low oil prices. And, and a great part of um, Vision 2030 is supposed to be found by oil revenues. So it is really a challenge for the country. But yeah, Vision 2030 is certainly a, an interesting project. Um, it, it, it can benefit to, to Saudi Arabia on, on the long term. Um, it seeks to modernize the, the economy, to include women in the workforce um, more than before. And if we speak in terms of uh, women entrepreneurship or women in general, a change in approach in the ultra-conservative kingdom is not an easy thing. And well, internal boundaries that have been built in the mind of Saudi women by decades of conditioning and draconian male guardianship system will take time to be reformed. Uh, it is some, not something that might happen overnight. Although, also the, the, the project, or let's call it the flashy project of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, such as Neom, um, aim at diversifying the economy, and, and, and they are certainly interesting, but you also have people who believe that this is, this is not the best approach, that this money, these billions of dollars, could be invested elsewhere and could benefit more to the Saudi economy in the long term. Um, also, you have a local opposition. Um, if we look at the, at the area where um, Neom is supposed to take place, there are people living there. There are over 20,000 people living there. There are tribes. And, and those people um, face repression from the state. It is, it is a, I mean, Vision 2030 is an ambitious project um, that comes certainly with um, great ideas and, and and that makes sense. Um, yet, you still have voices that question whether it is the right choice, the right decision or not. And then happens uh, the COVID-19 crisis. And this crisis really pushed some people to question even more whether it is the right thing to do or whether um, smaller scale project could make more sense. Um, maybe a smaller economy, but, but a more sustainable one on the, on the long term. Yet, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has um, reaffirmed its commitment to the project, um, reaffirmed its commitment to funding the project uh, on the long term. So, Saudi Arabia is, is really at um, a turning point of its modern history, I would say. Um, 
they are at a moment where they have to modernize the economy and they have to uh, slash their dependence on, on, on oil revenues. But to fund that, they also need oil revenues. So it, it's a difficult time. And, um, and, and the coming years will be very, very important for the kingdom and, and also very interesting, of course, to, to look at. Let me ask you for two uh, kind of quick takes on uh, two other Gulf countries you've written about, Oman and Kuwait. Both are going through leadership transitions and also deep economic challenges. The transitions come again as they're dealing with uh, with various um, changes and reforms that need to be undertaken, again, in the context of uh, low oil prices and COVID-19, but, it, but it's also more than that in both countries. Of course, the, the, Kuwait and Oman are, are unique, I would say, in the region. We have just, we just spoke about the, about the GCC crisis and the GCC in general. Um, both Oman and Kuwait are countries that strongly believe in the importance of regional unity, that strongly believe in uh, multilateralism, who strongly believe in uh, the GCC as an entity. And both countries are going through um, a difficult economic time, uh, I would say. And, and in the middle of that happened um, uh, the death of their respective rulers. I mean, if we take the case of, of Oman, Sultan Qaboos has been really the, the modernizer or um, the, the person who had founded what we can call modern Oman that, that we know today. So for, for those two countries, it, the, the situation is to challenge both an, an economic situation, which is complex, an economic transition towards a less dependent uh, economy on, on oil revenues, and also to challenge their position in the region to, to remain those mediators that they have been for, for the past couple of decades and, and, and to reaffirm their commitment to the GCC and, and stay in between the Qatar axis and, and the uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia axis, which is a quite uncomfortable position uh, given the current political context of the region. For, for those two, two countries, the challenges are really, really important uh, and, and very, very difficult to, to navigate. In Oman, there are two projects taking place that are um, interesting and promising for, for the future. Uh, the, form, the first one has been um, the reformation of the government. Um, in Oman, at the moment, there is a new government um, made of technocrats, or, or let's say more technocrats than before. Uh, and it is interesting for, for the country, and it, it goes certainly in the right direction to streamline the administration, uh, make it more efficient, um, to make it more ambitious and, and, and more oriented towards um, economic reforms and, and, and economic diversification. So this is the first important and interesting project taking place. The second one is um, the formation of uh, a new sovereign wealth fund, um, which took control of all public companies in, in Oman. And, and really the role of the publics of the, the new sovereign wealth fund will be to streamline the administration of those public companies and make them more efficient. We have published a, a report on, on this topic uh, earlier this year. And we talked to someone at the sovereign wealth fund for Oman who, who explained us that the the objective of this reform is also to insufflate in, in, the, in, the, um, in the public companies uh, a spirit of private sector. So it, it's really to change the dynamics and, and prepare the population, prepare the people 
for the change that are coming and, and actually tell them and, and educate them about um, the fact that the future is not going to be like the past. Sebastian, last question. Uh, you're working on an article uh, for later this week on a monitor on the idea of a universal basic income that seems to be getting some traction in some circles in the Gulf. Uh, can you give us a, a short preview of this piece? Of course. Exactly. I, I work on a, on a piece on ideas uh, shared by several people across the region about um, the universal basic income. Well, in the light of the multiple economic challenges faced by the region and the complexity of reforming general social welfare system, there are some people who believe that universal basic income could be the solution that could um, work well uh, here in the Gulf region. It would streamline the redistribution of the oil rents and help also to re responsibilize uh, GCC nationals to the economic realities um, uh, going forward. So that will be my next report and it will be available on, on Monitor next week. We'll look forward to that. Sebastian, thank you for speaking with us today on, on the Middle East and for your many contributions to our understanding of Gulf economies at El Monitor. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. We will be right back with some closing remarks after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back. Lots of takeaways from our conversation with Sebastian Castellier. But let me just mention two, dealing with the US and China and the upcoming US presidential election. First, the Gulf is charting a middle course between the US and China. The region's future is a hub between East and West, so good relations with both the United States and China matter. I was especially interested in Sebastian's reference to interest in the region, to China's approach to governance, and for collaboration in a number of areas, including development of a COVID vaccine and other joint initiatives. This is not to say that the Gulf is not also deepening its already strong ties with the United States, that is, of course, a top priority for the states of the region. It's simply to say that for the Gulf states, it's not either or with the U.S. and China. They want good relations with both countries. Second, in the vice presidential debate last week, Democratic candidate Senator Kamala Harris 
made the case that former Vice President Biden's approach to foreign policy is rooted in relationships. Know your allies, keep their trust, and know your adversaries too. Now, when I was a foreign policy staffer for then-Senator Chuck Hagel, I traveled with then-Senators Biden and Hagel to the region on several occasions. And I can say, in my analysis and my personal experience, that Harris is indeed exactly right. Vice President Biden sees relationships at the core of politics, not just foreign policy. And he's really good at cultivating those relationships and making them work. Interestingly, President Trump in the Middle East also seems to be a believer in relationships and has cultivated strong ties with leaders of the Gulf, as well as in Israel, Egypt, Turkey, and elsewhere. And I thought of this when Sebastian said that some in the GCC may prefer a second Trump administration over a Biden administration. There may be a slight tilt in favor of Trump with regard to his policies in the region, at least in Israel and the Gulf. Some of the Gulf states in Israel are wary of a return to the Iran nuclear deal, which Biden supports. And they're also concerned about some tough talk from Biden and the Democrats about whether he might impose more conditions on the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.